You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Well, welcome to our first Sunday of the Supremacy of Christ series. Why the Supremacy of Christ? Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of God's plan of redemption. Jesus Christ is the center of God's love for us. He is the answer to every question we have in regards to why. Why are we here? How are we to live? In Christ is how we live and move and have our being. Christ is the light of the world. He's the bread of life. And he is living water. And Christ is the focus of our praise, our adoration, and our worship. Paul wrote to the Colossian church. He said this, All that we are in need is in Christ, who is the mystery for ages, hidden for ages and generations, But now, he's revealed to us, his church, his saints, through his holy word. In this letter that we just read, the verses specifically, the Apostle Paul, he draws us to behold Christ. Behold. Behold means to to just take in. David says in Psalm 27, I want to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. We're to behold Christ. And as we behold Christ, what we see here is that he is wonderful. He is beautiful. He is powerful. And to behold Christ in his supremacy is to behold Christ in the cross. So as we grow in Christ, it's no wonder that Paul, Paul was someone who who suffered himself as a human being. Paul, who suffering in his body through sickness and beatings and persecution and imprisonment. His supreme desire was to know Christ and him crucified. So that's the answer as to why the supremacy of Christ. So now, so we could better see Christ in this text, I want to give a little bit of background to the church of Colossae. Oftentimes... Problems and issues that arose in the early church, um, these issues served as occasions for the New Testament letters to be written. And in this case, it was written to to, uh, address a particular issue in the church of Colossae. And here was the problem. Epaphras, who was a disciple of Paul, he had preached the gospel in the city of uh, Colossae. And he was most likely the one who had established the church. So he had since joined Paul, ministering to him in prison, where Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae. And what he did is he related to Paul in detail of the Colossians' love for each other because they were a genuine church of Christ. But what happened, there were some visitors that came. Some visitors had joined the church, and they were teaching erroneous doctrine. 
And it was Paul who said that they would delude the church with plausible arguments. Plausible arguments, something that sounded good, it sounded right. But it was to the point where some were in danger of being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So now philosophy, it's not bad in and of itself. In fact, it's a, it's a very underappreciated discipline. But this was a philosophy that is according to human tradition. This was a philosophy according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So the danger was not just present then in the Colossian church. The danger is present here and now. The danger is this, what we believe, what we believe influences our thoughts and ultimately our actions. What we believe influences our thoughts and ultimately our actions. So whatever form this human-centered philosophy takes, whether it's a religious form, a cultural or socio-economic type of philosophy, a, a philosophy of personal freedom and improvement political philosophy, if it's a philosophy that, that's about the realm of justice, if it's not according to Christ, it's empty deceit. Now, just because something is labeled Christian, it doesn't mean that it's truly of Christ, right? And just because something is not known as Christian doesn't mean that it isn't true or even helpful. Because all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. Anything that is not will ultimately lead to destruction. And here's how we know this. In Proverbs 14, 12, it says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Let me say something here that is critical to understanding the nature of this danger. While it may express itself in a very practical and and tangible ways, the source of this vain philosophy, the, the elemental spirits of the world, as Paul says, this empty deceit, it's really demonic in origin. Christ himself said to those who were the most religious people of his day, this is what he said to them, You are of your father, the devil. You lie because he is the father of lies. That is an indictment. Church, what we battle against is not flesh and blood. What we battle against is our rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That is what we battle against. And so Paul, he rightly desires with an intensity to confront this vain philosophy, this this dangerous message that looks very attractive. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, he says... These indeed, these philosophies that are drawing people away from Christ, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so, as Paul does 
throughout his letters in the New Testament. He combats this dangerous belief system. And he does so by having the church, that's us, focus on Christ and his gospel. He has us, his church, focus on Christ and his gospel. So we'll do that by looking at these verses, verses 15 through 20. And there's a simple structure in the text. It's really two parts. So the first part, we're going to look at Christ as the creator. Christ as the creator, verses 15 through 17. And as creator, he is the authority and he is the sustainer. The second part of the text is in verses 18 through 20. We're going to see Christ as creator of the new creation. Creator of the new creation. We'll see him as head of the church. And we'll see him as redeemer and reconciler. So let's begin our look at the supremacy of Christ. Let's back up a couple of verses to verse 13. Verse 13. He, that is God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. The domain of darkness. It's demonic forces. The spiritual realm. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And who is this beloved Son, this Christ? Verse 15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. When we consider Jesus Christ, we must start with the very nature of who he is and who he is not. First, who is he? He's the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? Well, image, image, the Greek word for image is icon, E-I-K-O-N. It's like the word icon that we use today. But what icon means is he is the image of one Only one. The intent here is to show that God, unique, who is unlike any other, is imaged perfectly and completely by Christ because he is the same essence as God. This is where the church, throughout history, this is where the church has done well. It's done well because it has encapsulated this foundational truth in the creeds. In fact, these these verses 15 through 20, they're actually understood to be a confessional statement. These verses actually are a hymn in the early church, a magnificent hymn that was sung to praise the virtues of Christ. And what we see here, as Paul writes in another letter to, to Timothy, the church, that's us right here, the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And we do that, we do that because we, we preach the gospel as we are uh, preaching his word and we believe in the gospel. That's how we safeguard the truth. So back to the creeds. Some of you may be familiar with this language. The Nicene Creed states that Jesus Christ is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, one in being with the Father not made. Not made. 
He is one in essence with the Father. Some of you may say, well, creeds aren't in the Bible. And that's true. But what these creeds have done by the church, through the church, is very helpful because what they express is based on God's own revelation of himself through his word. And these creeds, in their positive declarations, they serve as a reputation of the heresies that challenge the very word of God. But let's look at God's word. In John chapter 1, verse 18, the gospel says, No one has ever seen God. No one. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus Christ, he has made him known. Church, Christ has explained God. He has explained, he has revealed God to us. And he has shown, him, shown us who he is and what he is like perfectly. Perfectly and completely because Christ himself is God. Why am I laboring on this point? Because there are very real consequences to what we believe about God and what we believe about Christ. Jesus himself said in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, that I am the Savior, I am the bread of life, I am God the Son who has died for your sins, unless you believe that I am he, Jesus said, you will die in your sins. Here's another reason why we need to understand what Paul is saying when he declares that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Look at the second half of verse 15. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Christ is not a created being. Christ is not the first one born like we're born. And two things, two things help explain this. First, in the Greek, firstborn, the word is, and I hope I pronounce it correctly, prototokos, prototokos. And what that means is first begotten. It's first begotten. Doesn't mean it's separate and created. It's begotten because of the same essence. So in the first century world, the firstborn had preeminence in all things. He was the one to inherit all authority and power. Now Christ specifically, as God with us, as God incarnate, as the perfect human, Christ does in fact inherit all things because of his perfect nature and his perfect obedience. In stating that Christ is the firstborn, Christ is uniquely superior, unlike any other, not a created being. Now second, the plain reading of the text is very helpful. The plain reading of the text in the following verse, it explains emphatically that Christ is in fact the creator. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created. For by Christ all things were created. Simply put. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, 
all things were created through him and for him. Now notice that. By him, through him, and for him. These are all reasons to explain that all things, the physical universe, the spiritual realm, even the demonic forces, the rulers and the authorities, all things were created by him. So he is distinct from the creation because he is the creator. All things were created through him because he is the authority. And all things were created for him, pointing to the fact that all things are created for his plan and his purposes, which are good and are done for his glory alone. Christ as creator, who alone has authority, is also the one who sustains us. Christ sustains us. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you were to ask the question, what's the most powerful force in the universe, and you Google it, like I did, you wouldn't get Thanos and the Infinity Stones, right? I know, that's 2019. But you'll get things like the Event Horizon Black Hole. That's a massive, supermassive black hole. They're out there. You'd get gamma rays. You'd get intelligence, human and artificial. Now, as massive or life-altering as these things may be, they're all created things. Now, think about what we just read in verse 16. And what we've learned from Genesis. And what we've learned from John chapter 1. Christ spoke all that is into existence. Christ spoke all that is into existence by his word. Now think about Christ and his return. When he comes back, he will destroy his enemies with the word of his mouth. He will destroy his enemies with the word of his mouth. So what's keeping the earth from rotating off its axis? Some say it may be global warming. I don't know. What keeps the sun from those sun flares from coming and electromagnetic pulse to, to knock out all the systems in the world and, and destroy things? It's happened. What's keeping, from the, what's keeping the universe from imploding? There's a force called gravity that kind of keeps these celestial bodies in place. But what keeps that gravity in place? The writer to the Hebrews plainly says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ sustains us by the word of his power. The supremacy of Christ, shown powerfully as a creator, or the creator. And as creator, he is the supreme authority. And by his mercy... He is the sustainer. In him, all things hold together. Amen? Now, second half of our text. In the second half of our text, verse 18, 
I want us to see that the supremacy of Christ is manifested in his sufficiency through the gospel. That the mystery that has been hidden through the ages is progressively revealed through time in scripture and it points always to Christ and his gospel. It points always to Christ and his gospel. Verse 18, and he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent. As he is the creator and the authority in all creation, we've established that in the first part, Christ is the founder and the authority of the new creation, the new humanity called the church. That's us right here. We're evidence right now of this new creation. But is Paul in stating that Christ is the head of the church, is he saying this just as a a way to simply reinforce his authority? Or is it possible, is it possible that a church can move away from the very one who has made them the church? If you look at Revelation, Christ speaks directly to the churches. We see churches abandoning their first love. We see churches who are holding on to false teaching. Some are tolerating sexual immorality and the deep things of Satan. We see some, church, we see some churches that are on the verge of dying. And we see churches who are lukewarm because in their prosperity, they are self-sufficient. And yet Christ exhorts each church to repent. Why? Because they are his. They are his. We belong to Christ as the church of Christ. And so I believe what Paul is declaring here, that Christ as the head of the body, the church, it's not just a formality. It's not. When our son Hans was but a toddler... There was a time uh, when he was sick. And when he was sick, he was very, very weak. And not only was he listless, he wasn't active, he, he wasn't talking. It was pretty scary. And those of you who know Hans, that, that's not him. <laughs> but what he needed in the moment was not medicine. What he needed in the moment was not sleep. What he needed was nourishment. Don't worry, we fed him. (laughs) But he wasn't holding anything down and what he really needed at that moment in time was nourishment. So I remember we fed him scrambled eggs and bread or rice, I forget. Uh, And we gave him water. And through feeding him, through nourishing him in that moment, he became more invigorated. And of course, the telltale sign that he was doing well, he was talking again. But isn't that what Christ does and what he is for us as head of the church? Isn't that what he does when he tells us to 
Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ as the head of the church, it's not a formal title. It is vital. It is a vital necessity for our very existence and for our well-being. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 18, he says this, to those who were uh, teaching false things because they weren't holding fast to the head. So the second half of verse 18 in, in Colossians chapter 2, he says, not holding fast to the head, but when we do hold fast to the head, the whole body is nourished. Nourished. It's nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. And get this, it grows with a growth that is from God. Jesus Christ says this, if you abide in me, if you abide in me, if you're nourished, if you live, if you grow in me and I in you, you will do well and you will bear fruit and you will honor our Father in heaven. But if not, he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. The second half of verse 18 in our text, we're going to see some phrases that we're going to link to the first part. That Christ is the creator of the new creation and that Christ himself is the gospel. There's some parallel realities in verses 15 and 16. If you take a look at verse 15, it says, he is the image of the invisible God. And then verse 18, he says, he is the beginning. And then back in verse 16, it says, he is the firstborn of all creation. And then in verse 18, he is the firstborn from the dead. That parallelism is important because Paul's using a a Genesis type of language to reinforce the reality that the first Adam, when all conditions were perfect, all conditions were perfect, Adam had brought in sin. And it resulted in death. It resulted in, in suffering and pain. Destruction of all kinds. Corrosion of the heart and humanity. And entering into the rule and the reign of the prince of the power of the air. Satan himself. But now Christ, who in the fullness of time had come. He came as a second Adam. And through his resurrection, that's key. Through his resurrection, he became the firstborn from the dead. That's what that means. It means he resurrected, and when he he did that, he ushered in the new creation, the new humanity. So that in everything, he might be preeminent. So here's how the new creation was accomplished. In verse 19, this is amazing. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christ, who is fully God, and this text establishes that, he's also fully human. Fully God, fully human. Psalm 40, Hebrews 10, bears witness to that. For Christ says, a body you have prepared for me to do your will, O God. And what is that will? 
verse 20. And through him, verse 20 of our text, Christ is going to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through him, to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. One theologian says this, all theology leads to the gospel, and without the cross, there is no gospel. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without forgiveness of sins, there is no reconciliation with the Father, and thus, no peace. Without the resurrection, there is no guarantee of the new creation, the ascension of Christ, and his return where we will reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the importance of the cross, church, the importance of the cross. As Christ reconciles to God all things, Paul expands on this. And he gives us added insight into this indescribable reality. Take a look at chapter 2. We're going to go ahead a little bit to chapter 2. Take a look at verse 9. It says... Colossians 2, verse 9. And as we've been talking about this, the elders, we've been understanding how critical and undertaught the nature of our union with Christ. That doctrine of our union with Christ. It is everything. And note how often he says, in him and with him. Chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him. Church, you have been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him, In baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith. Through faith. That's the conduit with which we are empowered by God's grace. We are raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Amen. I want want right now for us to, to pause and see... The, the foundational importance of the cross. The cross, it was invented as a way to punish criminals by exposing them to open shame and to have them suffer unimaginable pain and ultimately execution. I'm not going to go into all the medical details of crucifixion, I can't even imagine having thick metal spikes driven through parts of my body. But one aspect of hanging on the cross or from the cross is that you cannot breathe because you're hanging and you have to push yourself up just to inhale. And whenever you do that, the nerves through your body 
They're already firing in pain because the nails in the hands of the feet are rotating around those spikes. And that's why they place a built-in step so that the one being crucified can support themselves to step up and inhale. It's intended not as a mercy, but it's meant to prolong the suffering and the shame. It's a cruel and a violent instrument of death. It's no wonder that the word to describe intense pain is the word excruciating because that literally means out of the cross. And it's amazing that Christ was able to utter words while hanging in this state of open shame. His first words were, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And his last words were, it is finished. I don't mention this. I don't, I don't want to mention this realities of crucifixion for shock value. I want to tell us this as a reminder that in Christ's supremacy, in the reconciliation of us to the Father, it wasn't just a theoretical exercise in theology. It wasn't a neat and tidy doctrine but it's the reality of a historical event in time and space. Where as horrific, the physical, the mental, the emotional pain and the suffering that Christ had on our behalf, what was more, what was more than that was he drank the cup of God's wrath. He drank the cup of God's wrath. He suffered the punishment of the Father for our sins. For my sin. He did that for you and for me. And in doing so, he reconciled us to him. And we get now to engage in the ministry of reconciliation with one another. Look at verse 13. Hopefully we see this new and afresh. Look at verse Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, chapter 2, verse 13, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. All of our trespasses. And here's how he did it, verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Sin demands punishment. And this he set aside, not with a wave of goodwill, but this God set aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. What Satan intended for evil, the cross, to use as a humiliating and shameful instrument of death for God the Son, God uses it for his own glory. Look at verse 15. It says, He disarmed the rulers and the authorities... Those are the demonic forces. He disarmed them and he put them to shame, open shame, by triumphing over them in him, in Christ, in Christ. Oh, the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. 
as the song says, I know a place, a wonderful place, where the accused and condemned find mercy and grace. Where the wrongs we have done and the wrongs done to us are nailed there to him, there at the cross. So what does that mean for us? It means everything. It's everything. It's everything, church. As Paul desires for the Colossians, and so Alec, me, and Dylan desire for you guys, our desire is, if you take a look at chapter 1, verse 9, Paul prays this prayer, and this is the prayer that we prayed this morning, and I share this with you now. Chapter 1, verse 9 of Colossians Our prayer is that you and me be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience. It's hard. Life is hard. But with all endurance and patience, with joy. With joy. Now because of our union with Christ, our oneness with Him, we get to live in the reality that we already possess. This is what we already possess We're going to end with these verses. Chapter 3, verse 10. I think it'll be on the screen, but you could note it down as well. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. It's an active engagement here of us as as his children, as new creatures in Christ. It says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We are being renewed in knowledge as we learn and grow about Christ and trust in him. He is growing in us. We are growing in him. And we are being renewed after his image. That is our destiny. That is our destiny. And then if you were to drop down to verse 15 in chapter 3. Listen to what we possess. And let the peace of Christ... The peace of Christ. We are at peace with our creator because he has reconciled us to him. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule into, in your hearts to which indeed you were called into one body. That is how that is, is lived out and exercised and experienced. And be thankful In verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word of Christ, may it dwell in us richly. We mentioned a couple weeks ago about the means of grace, taking time to, to internalize the word of God. Allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. So we'll end here.
Paul says, he states something more than a paradigm shift. It's the new reality. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. After having us behold Christ in his supremacy, Paul presents us with the elevated reality of our union with Christ and the future hope that it guarantees. The future hope that it guarantees. Look at verse 1 of of Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, and you have, you have. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. 